remind you of why we've been doing what we've been doing over the last couple of months. We've basically asked ourselves this question as a, as a team. How do we help most facilitate the presence of God? How do, we, how do we facilitate God being with us in the most wonderful way every time we gather? We want to cooperate with the Holy Spirit rather than hindering the Holy Spirit coming. Would you agree? And so every time we get together, whether it's in a small group or for dinner or for a congregation like this, we want God's presence with us. And we know that God is always with us, but there's a tangible sense that you can, you just know sometimes that God is in the house. Like this morning, God was here. The Holy Spirit was ministering to people. So what we've been trying to say to ourselves and ask this question is how can we more fully cooperate with the Holy Spirit to, make, to, to create an environment where He loves to be? Yes? We want the church to be an environment where the Holy Spirit loves to be. And so we talked about some things together. Things like unity. Things like the grace of God. Things like uh, a community that honors the Holy Spirit, God, and each other. These are the things that welcome the presence of the Holy Spirit. Yeah? Division. Disunity. Unforgiveness. Those are things that chase the Spirit of God away. If He can be chased away. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? And so that's why we've been doing this series called, 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 called Tending Our Roots. And we've looked at things, cultivating unity, uh, the centrality of the gospel, why I bother with church. Clive did a couple of sessions on worship, wonderful sessions on worship. And then I've been speaking recently about how we can uh, create a culture of honor. And so what I'd like to do today is to talk a little bit more around one of these core things that we'd like to co continue to cultivate in the life of this church, and that is servant-heartedness. And uh, how can we cultivate a sense of servant-heartedness in our lives? And so I want to start with um, a question for you. Who's the greatest? And I've got a little clip for you to play, please, Jess, of a very famous man who um, coined a phrase. Right. So you recognize Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay. And uh, I just thought I'd include this little clip because he really was a man who claimed to be the greatest, wasn't he? And um, he became known as the people's champion. Uh, and uh, he, he really is one of the world's greatest sporting icons, really. If you think about boxing, if you think about someone who uh, spoke out of a place of, of bigging himself up and claiming to be the greatest, then you think of Muhammad Ali, you think of Cassius Clay. And actually it was this year, um, the 25th of February this year, that marked the 50th anniversary of that fight that he was referencing in that clip where he took on Sonny Liston and he beat him. And he was a 22-year-old novice that very few people had heard of. The bookmakers gave him a 7-to-1 chance to take the title. And he did. And he had this little phrase that he said over and over and again, I am the greatest. And after a while, um, the, the world began to believe that he, that he was the greatest. And uh, he had a couple of phrases, some of you that, that you heard in that clip that he became famous for. He had a couple of others. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. His hands can't hit what his eyes can't see. I mean, he was brilliant, wasn't he? He just kind of really had this kind of turn of phrase and, um, and he really um, got people kind of thinking about who he was. Uh, he said this also, I was never too bright in school. I'm not ashamed of it, though. I mean, how much does a school principal make in a month? Clive. <laughs> 
I said, I'm the greatest. I never said I was the smartest. And then that one uh, that uh, you saw in the clip, I'm so fast, last night I turned the light switch in my hotel room off and I was in bed before the room was dark. He said things like this. Like the Beatles, there will be never anything like them, like my man Elvis Presley. I am the Elvis of boxing. I mean, he just really, really could put it to people. But uh, perhaps his most um, well-known phrase was simply that, I am the greatest. And uh, so there is a certain self-confidence that you need if you're going to achieve at the highest level of sport. I would imagine that Federer and uh, Djokovic this afternoon are going to be exhibiting something of that self-confidence as they play. You have to believe in yourself to achieve uh, in terms of sport. But what is real greatness? And you might think, well, why am I, I'm talking about greatness when I want to talk about servant-heartedness because, because Jesus did a profound thing. He put the two together. And we're going to read from Mark chapter 9, verse 33. And Jesus puts these two things together. He talks about greatness and He talks about servant-heartedness and He puts them together. He says this in Mark 9, 33. They came to Capernaum and when He was in the house, He asked them, what were you discussing along the way? Jesus is quite polite with His disciples. They were actually fighting with each other. They were having a big argument. And He just says, what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent. They were embarrassed. They'd been found out. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. <laughs> and so he sat them down. He kind of calls them together. His little bunch of, his band of brothers. He says, come guys, I'm going to teach you a lesson. He, he brings them, calls them all together. He sits them down. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child, and he put them in the midst of them, and taking the child into his arms, he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So Father, I want to pray for your word this morning. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are here to teach us and to help us to see more fully who you are who the Father is, and that you want to come this morning and enlarge our hearts for what you want to do through us. And so I just pray, Lord, that you'd help me to communicate well and that people would be inspired and encouraged and refreshed this morning as we look at this text together. In Jesus' name, amen. So I just want to say three things by way of introduction um, that I read this week. Uh, John Piper just commenting on this portion he says three little things. He says this, this amazing little portion that shows us three simple things. First, the path to true greatness. The path to true greatness. Um, this is the first thing that Jesus says to his, his disciples in response to this argument that they've been having about who of them was the greatest. And if you read uh, that whole chunk of Scripture, they had been casting out demons uh, they were talking about, well, surely the greatest is John that Jesus loves. He's the closest to Jesus, so Jesus must love him the most. He, he's the greatest of all of us. And Jesus kind of, he points them along a path that he wants them to see. Uh, he, he challenges them and says, there is a path to greatness, but it's not what you expect. That's the first thing he says. Secondly, he doesn't destroy the pursuit of greatness. Do you notice that? He doesn't kind of say to them, guys, you're looking in the wrong way. Um, 
he says something quite profound. He says, this quest for greatness that you have, you want to achieve something with your life, that's a good thing, but it's been distorted a little bit. It's been distorted by sin. And instead of destroying the whole thing and saying, guys, we need to start again, what Jesus does, he says, if you understand what I'm saying to you and you pursue greatness, it will become something beautiful in your life rather than something ugly. Nowhere that I know of in the Scripture does Jesus criticize people for pursuing something great in their lives. And I was thinking about that this week. Uh, There's a God-given desire in in us, for all of us, that we want our lives to count for something. How many of you haven't said to your, your, your husband, your wife, your children, your friends, I want my life to count. I said that to Helen recently when I turned 50. I want the next 25 or 30 years or 40 years, I want them to count. I feel like I know some stuff now and God's taught me some things, but I want my life to count in a, in a, in a, in a way that when I die, people are going to say, that was a, a generous man. That was a, a kind man. I don't know what you want your life to count for, but I, I said to Helen recently in the kitchen when we were cooking, If I died, I'd like to be known of two things. He was a kind man, and he loved God. That's about it. (laughs) We want our lives to count for something. This is a God-given thing in our lives. There's a longing for greatness to achieve something with our lives. And Jesus, he points them back to that thing. But he points out this. He says, that longing in you has been distorted by sin... And it needs to be transformed. And what is, there's two ways I want to put to you that have sin has distorted this longing for greatness in our lives. Um, first of all, sin has corrupted this longing in all of us not to be great, but simply to be known as great. <laughs> and nowhere is that better illustrated than in our culture in England. There is a celebrity culture in our, in, in, in our nation. It's not even important anymore what you are known for, just the fact that you are known. So you can be known as a topless model, and it's on the same kind of par as someone who's um, done something great for science. Celebrity is all that counts. It doesn't matter what you're famous for, as long as you are famous. I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. And there are all these people on television who've done nothing really with their lives except achieved some measure of fame, and that's good enough. That's a distortion of what God has put inside of us to be known for greatness. And secondly, sin corrupts this longing, this God-given thing in us, not just to be great, but to be greater than someone else. (laughs) Isn't that true? In other words, the joy of just being yourself and allowing God to do something great through you in your life has been perverted by sin into this kind of carnal pleasure that we get when other people tell us we are better than someone else. We are greater than someone else. So it's not important anymore, the World Cup. Not just to be a great footballer, but who's the greatest? Is it Neymar? Is it Messi? Is it Ronaldo? The greatest. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest tennis player of all time? Is it Federer? Is it Djokovic? Is it some of the Boris Becker or Borg or McEnroe? Who was it? Who's the greatest? So our greatness always needs to be measured 
against somebody else, rather just than enjoying what God, who God has made us to be. And so Jesus is trying to get his disciples to see as they're pursuing this thing of greatness that he wants to transform the path in their lives and how they see greatness and what they're aiming at. And so he transforms this quest that they have to do something great for their lives. And he turns it completely on its head and he says this, true greatness is not wanting to be first while others are second and third and fourth. True greatness is willing to be willing to be last of all. Isn't that a radical thing in our culture? True greatness is not positioning yourself that others will praise you and say, what a great person you are. But true greatness is putting yourself in a position to serve everybody and to be a blessing to as many people as you can through your life. And Jesus says, that is greatness. So, Jesus doesn't condemn this desire for greatness, but He radically transforms it, and He says, go ahead and pursue it with all of your heart, but the path is not up, the path is down. He radically transforms it. So let me pick on myself for a moment as a pastor. What is the measure of true greatness for a pastor? Is it how many people come to the church? You know, you're a great pastor if you have thousands of people in your church. Is it about how many books you might write? I think books are a great thing. How many uh, television programs you might have broadcast? How many conferences you might speak at? Is, is that a measure of true greatness for pastors? I want to say to you this morning, I suggest to you this morning, it's not. I, I want to suggest to you that the greatest measure of great, the greatest measure for any pastor is simply this. What degree for the pastor has the impulse to exalt yourself being crucified in your own life. That's the great measure for pastors, as it is for all of us. What heart really is there to serve other people? What heart is there really just to decrease, that others may increase, and that Jesus might be glorified? That's the true measure of greatness for any pastor. So, why do I say that? Because the Bible says that. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 4.5 or Romans 2.29 this is what Paul says, Beware how you measure greatness in the servants of God. Do not pronounce judgment before time until the Lord comes, who will bring light to the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Every man will then receive his condemnation from God. In other words, Paul is saying, Don't judge now by what you see. It's an issue of the heart and God sees in the heart. So there's this transformation that Jesus points us to. And then I'd just like to point you to a couple of things. Jesus clearly defines greatness in this passage. And the first thing he says is that greatness involves humility. Yeah? Whoever wants to be first, note the language here, whoever wants to be first shall be last. It seems even like a little bit humiliating to me, doesn't it? Jesus says, if you want to be great, you shall be lost. What does that mean? It means there'll be times in your life and times in my life where we feel like we really are the last in the line. <laughs> we really will feel like everyone else is getting ahead except us. <laughs> we really will feel like 
Other people are getting blessed and prospering, and we are not. We are the last in the queue. It will feel like that. You'll have times in your life. And why is that? Because God's sovereign plan, He wants the process of, in your life to be a beautiful one. He doesn't want that process to be bent out of shape by sin and by the wrong motives. And so He allows moments in your life, in His sovereign plan, where you feel like you are the last in the queue. And His promise to you is, if you want to be great, there will be times that you shall be last of all. Philippians 3 verse 8, that's what I think Paul meant when he said this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. I've said to you this before. We sang it this morning. God makes all things work together for good. And I've said to you before, that means all things. That means good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent. All things work together for good in our, in our lives when we are called according to His purpose. And here I have to say, here, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things. What does that possibly mean? Well, it could mean money, reputation. It could mean standing in society. It could mean anything. It could mean all things. <laughs> I had suffered loss all things so that I might know Christ. And so sometimes there are going to be times where we will find ourselves lost of all. Secondly, Jesus says greatness involves serving other people. Whoever wants to be first shall be the servant of all. I don't think that means that we run around just... Um, Allowing people to tell us what, what to do. You do this, you do this. Oh, I must be the servant of all. And you run around like a headless chicken just doing lots and lots of stuff. I don't think Jesus is talking about that at all. What I think He does mean is that our lives need to be lived, dedicated to being a blessing to other people. That's what I think He means. That's what He means by being a servant of all. In my devotions this week, I read a little thing by A.W. Tozer. And... Um, he was just discussing how Christians use their freedom. I trust you all know that you're free in Jesus. You're free from guilt. You're free from condemnation. You're free from manipulation. You are free in Christ. You do not have to do anything. This is the scandal of the gospel. As a pastor, I can't get you to come to church on a Sunday by putting a whip on your back and saying, you better come to church. No, no, no. You actually are free in the gospel not to come to church. That sounds radical, doesn't it? But this is the truth of the gospel. It must be an inside-out thing. It's a good thing to come to church to be with God's people, to worship and to be encouraged, but no one can force you. It has to be from the inside out. We are free to do whatever we like with our lives as Christians. But here's the thing. A.W. Tozer says this, talking about freedom. Every man, every person in a free society must decide whether he will exploit his liberty or curtail it for moral and intelligent ends. He must take upon himself the responsibility of business and family, or he may shun all obligations and end up on skid row. The tramp is freer than the president or the king, but his freedom is his undoing. While he lives, he remains socially sterile, and when he dies, he leaves nothing to make the world glad that he had lived. The Christian cannot escape the peril of too much liberty. 
He is free. His very freedom may prove a real source of temptation to him. He is free from the chains of sin, free from the moral consequences of evil acts that have been forgiven. He's free from the curse of the law and the displeasure of God. He is free from all of those things. The great Christian is one who knows that he is free to do as he will, and he wills to be a servant. This is the path that Christ took. Blessed is the man who follows after him. We are free. We can do anything that we want in, in, in the freedom that Christ has bought for us. What are we going to do with that freedom? I've said this to you before. Are we going to live selfishly for our little lives and our little family? And as long as the blessing is there in our family and our lives, or are we going to live for others? Are we going to live for a much higher thing? Jesus who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and he became servant of all that we might enjoy the freedom that we enjoy now. Thirdly, in this little portion here, Jesus shows that being great involves sympathy for the powerless. Sympathy, sympathy for those who do not have power. And how does Jesus illustrate that? He takes a child... And he gets the child to stand in the middle of all this group of people. And he treats this child with great affection. And why does he do that? Jesus never did anything randomly. He did that because children in ancient cultures did not have any standing in the culture. None whatsoever. And he treats this little child with great affection. And he says, whoever welcomes one of these, these little children, welcomes me. And then he says, in fact... When you welcome this little child, you're actually welcoming the one who sent me. You're welcoming God. You're, you're honoring God when you honor this powerless child. And ch children really are symbols of complete dependence, aren't they? Babies are symbols of, of complete dependence, of powerlessness. And often children are overlooked, often they're ignored, often they are neglected, mistreated. And unfortunately, we are seeing more and more often in these evil days in which we live that children are trafficked and exploited for every kind of evil. If that doesn't make you angry and sick, I don't know what will. And Jesus says, he says here, we need to be welcoming those that are powerless. This is, this is what it means to be great, is to welcome those that are powerless. And the genuine greatness in God's kingdom involves welcoming those that are despised, overlooked, and powerless in society. And so I want to put it to you this morning that um, no one is great who only chooses to be associated with high and mighty people for their friends. No church is great that only wants people of standing as its members. True greatness is in welcoming those that are overlooked and no one else wants to welcome. Uh, one of the uh, men that has made a, a big impact on Helen's life and my life is a man that you might never have heard of. His name is Henry Nowen. He was born in Nakak, which is uh, obviously in Holland, in 1932, and he died in Hilversum, in 1996, quite recently. He was a Dutch-born Catholic priest. And I know there's so many things that we can say, and a lot of stuff has happened that has tarnished the reputation of, of the Catholic Church, but, but this, this man has made a radical impact into my own life. And uh, we can learn from everybody, can't we? And if we're going to be humble, we need to learn from everybody. His, his main interests were rooted primarily in, in, in psychology, in pastoral ministry, 
and social justice, and he wrote extensively. He was a very bright man, and so over the course of his life, over two decades of his life, he, ta he taught at the top academic um, institutions, including Notre Dame University, Yale Divinity School, Harvard. And he went on towards the end of his life. He left all of that behind him, and he gave his life to serve one young man in particular that was physically and mentally handicapped, and he, he worked with this man until he died. He gave himself for one person. He laid, he laid aside his, his academic uh, career and he decided to serve someone who was powerless. I find that incredibly challenging that someone would do that with their lives and give themselves away like that. He had hundreds of articles and books published, 39 books published. He sold 7 million copies of his writing. Uh, but he chose towards the end of his life that thing gripped him of actually I want to live in a different way and he gave himself for this uh, young man who was powerless and neglected that's understanding something of greatness as God sees it would you not agree uh, I told you the other day that I, I met Philip Yancey uh, playing golf with him and uh, he's, he's given himself simply to writing about the stories of God's grace in people's lives. And if you've read his books, they're incredibly encouraging. I'm not saying what it needs to be for you. I, all I'm saying is that God is calling us to live for others in whatever way we can. And I know in this church there are teachers, there are, there are doctors, there are people that are giving themselves, physiotherapists, they are giving themselves to other people. I want to commend you for that, that you would give yourself to serving and, and living for other people. And I, all I'm asking this morning is what might God be saying to you, specifically? <laughs> what is God saying to me? What is God saying to this church? Uh, uh, we went up on Friday to Bedford, um, to the King's Arms Church, where Derek and a couple of other guys wanted to just have a look at the work that they've been doing with homeless people for the last 25 years. They have a whole ministry now that um, includes two homes, they employ 25 people. Most of the, the, of the ministry is funded by the council, which is absolutely amazing. And they've been serving the homeless in Bedford for 25 years. Here's the thing that really struck me. It wasn't, it wasn't the preacher getting up on a Sunday and saying, we need, to, we need to start a ministry for the homeless. Any volunteers? You know how the whole thing started? One young woman who was a student at Bedford University decided to open her home and take in one homeless person and see if she could make a difference to that person's life. And that's how it started. In fact, that's how the church was planted. The church was planted because they had this ministry to homeless people and they wanted to create a church environment where homeless people would feel comfortable to come. And so they said, okay, we'll start a church. And that's how that church started. Isn't that an incredible story? What is God calling you to do? I don't know what He's calling you to do. But I want to challenge all of us this morning. I want to encourage all of us this morning. This church, God wants this church to become great in His eyes. Not in the eyes of the world. In His eyes, He wants us to become great. How can we give ourselves away in loving and serving others? Where are you being called to serve as an individual? How, how can you best serve those that are closest to you? Husbands, how can you better serve your wife? And I am going to ask a lot of questions, and I'm not going to give any answers. 
Why? Because I feel like God wants us to ponder these things for ourselves and to hear His voice for our lives. Husbands, how can you better serve your wife? Wives, how can you better serve your husband? Children, how can we better serve our children in our families? What, how, can we, how can we do all that we can to make sure that they become the people that God wants them to be? How, how can we get our children to better serve each other? How can we serve each other as members of this church family? It's a, del- a delightful family of believers here. How can we serve each other uh, better? There's so many opportunities to serve. How can you use your gifts to serve this church community? There's so many opportunities to serve in this church community. How can you use your gifts in your life to serve the community of St. Albans or wherever you live, Harpenden, Welland Garden City, or wherever? How can you use something of the gifts that God has given you to serve your community? There are so many opportunities, so many needs that need to be met. In other words, I'm saying, how can we live our lives, as Jesus said, if we want to become great in His eyes, how can we become the servant of all? And that's going to look different for all of us, isn't it? There are, and I'm, I'm not trying to um, point a finger at anyone. I'm saying, well, what does that look like for me at this stage in my life? What does God want me to do? And so I'm asking us to ponder these things. I'm asking us to pray about these things. I'm asking God, uh, in God that we'd find what He's calling each of us to and what He's calling us to as a church as we move forward. And it's going to be different for every one of us. The common thing for all is that everyone can be a servant. Is that not right? Living free from rivalry, living free of competition, comparing ourselves to other people, being aware of our own potential to hurt others along the journey, that we need to be truly, if we're going to give ourselves to love and purity, then we have to realize that we have potential to hurt others if we're not careful as we move through our lives. And... um, that we would be those that seek to do great things for God in His kingdom as He changes us, that we become servants of all. Amen? So we started with Muhammad Ali saying he was the greatest, and we've ended with Jesus saying, everyone can be great, but the path is not up, the path is down. Can you give your life to serving others? I believe that's what He has for us. That's when this church truly will become all that it, He wants us to become. Amen. I felt, I felt I'd like to just finish by breaking bread, which we haven't done for a while, but I was just reflecting on this in terms of, of um, what I've already pla- prayed. You know, in, 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 in um, is it Philippians? I can't remember. It says that Jesus humbled Himself the Lord of glory humbled Himself and gave Himself to be the servant of all. I mean, that really is our, that is our marker, isn't it? That's what Jesus did with His life. And I just felt we should reflect on that this morning as we break bread together. That we come and ask God for our own lives, that, that we're grateful for the fact that He's forgiven us from sin that we've committed. We are free. That thing of Tozer, that we are free to to do anything because of the freedom that we have in Christ, but that we'll be responsible with the freedom that we have, and that we'll be those that learn to use that freedom wisely and live for Him and not just for ourselves. Amen?
So I'm going to pray, and then I want to invite you to break bread. Perhaps you want to pray with a friend. Perhaps you want to pray with your family. It's fine, however you'd like to pray this morning. And let's reflect on these things as we break bread this morning, that truly, in our own lives, our lives will be a testimony that we live for others and not just for ourselves. Amen? So, Father, I want to thank you for uh, Jesus. I want to thank you for what he bought for us on the cross, the freedom that we have in him. And, Lord, it is a delight. It's an absolute delight to know the joy of being free from everything that has ever held us back that you've taken all of our sin upon yourself, that you've forgiven us, that you've washed us, that we are new creations. We, we rejoice in these things. My prayer this morning, Lord, is that as we reflect on them, the blessings that we have, you would help us to be those that live lives that are responsible with the freedom that we enjoy, that truly would be those that find greatness as we serve other people and enjoy that this church would fully enjoy all of the future that you have for us as we live increasingly for other people in every area of our lives. And I want to thank you, Lord, for those that already serve in so many, so many wonderful ways, those that are engaged in, in mercy ministries, nurses and, and doctors and uh, counselors and physiotherapists, teachers, those that are, are giving themselves in, in that kind of way to, to live for other people. We celebrate that, Lord. And we ask in, in all of our lives, whether we are working as uh, professionals in offices, uh, whatever our area of, of gifting is, we pray that you would help us to find ways that we can serve others and be a blessing to others, that we truly will be servants of all. And so we rejoice in your goodness to us and your kindness to us. And as we break bread together now this morning, we want to just reflect on these things and thank you for these things in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.